Thank you for tuning in to episode 7 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall and co-hosting as always is Tom Major. And this week we are digging into the lives of fossorial frogs. <laughs> nice pun, digging into frogs. I couldn't resist. They do love to dig. Yeah, fossorial frogs. So all those frogs that spend most of their time subterranean, hanging out in under rocks and under logs and generally just creeping around in the dark. Turns out quite a tough species to study because you've got to find them. Yeah, quite a tough, well, yeah, quite a tough group to study. They are, yeah, it seems as though a lot of the papers we were reading this week had exactly that problem, like, oh yeah, let's go and study some frogs that live under the ground. First, you've really got to dig some holes, which is kind of a pain. Um, (laughs) And you've got a very short window. Well, yeah, for some of them, they don't tend to, like, the surface. The surface is a sort of mysterious and terrifying place to these animals, so (laughs) they try and spend as little time there as they can, and... uh, for those people who are out there digging holes trying to find them, it proves quite quite a pain. Mm. So uh, yeah, this this episode we got a few papers that we've read. We've got one about some spatial ecology of a burrowing frog. Then we've got activity response to seasonality. So how a particular type of frog sort of divides its time based on the weather and the temperature, which is kind of cool. And uh, then we go into the most hilarious frog. We'll get onto it later, but literally the most ridiculous animal that has yeah. been. That has evolved today, I would I would wager. Just hilarious. It's gotta be up there. This frog is ridiculous. So yeah, we'll talk about the purple frog of India and uh why they make noises later on. Yeah, that's sort of the last one. And then classic species of the bye week. What would be an episode without species of the bye week? <laughs> yeah. Another frog. We won't say too much about it, but it'll be a surprise. But yeah. for this frog themed episode it will be a frog. Oh, do you wanna introduce the first paper and we'll get going then? Yeah, let's crack on. So the first paper is by Encarnacion Lovano, Rojas Soto and Segala Rodriguez and it's t- entitled Activity Response to Climate Seasonality in Species with Fossorial Habits, a niche modelling approach using the lowland burrowing tree frog Smilisca fodiens. And this one was published in 2013 in the journal PLOS One. Classic PLOS One. Open, open access. Open Go there. read it yourself. Exactly. Go, Get yeah. out there. Read it. It's it's good, it's fun, it's nice to read the whole thing, but mm. we are going to do our best to summarise it here anyway. Yeah, so you don't have to if you don't want to. Yeah, optional reading, yeah. It's a long paper, but... Um, well, actually, it, it, as plus one papers go, it's not as bad as it could have been. Some of those papers are marathons to get through, but... Yeah, yeah, they do tend to be quite long, but... Um, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that sometimes. Sometimes it's a bit of a slog, but other times it's like, <laughs> oh, I'm quite glad that was so long because they managed to put in a lot of information. Exactly. When there's a lot, yeah. sometimes you get bogged down with like a hideous amount of morphological explanation. Like, you know, when you've when you've read sort of the individual nuance of all four of a frog's toe pads, you think, man, <laughs> I'm starting to lose I'm the will. I'm in too deep. Yeah, I'm <laughs> in too deep. When will this knowledge ever be useful to me? It's not going to come up in a pub quiz. So it's better to just... Well, but when it does, we'll be ready. Yeah, the most niche pub quiz ever. But uh, yeah, this paper... Um, yeah, like like we said earlier, we're looking at a frog here with fossorial habits, the lowland burrowing tree frog, which... Um, it's quite a cool frog. It's from America. Member of Hylidae. That's right, yeah. Hylidae, a.k.a. tree frogs and their allies. So, generally speaking, frogs that... Live in the trees. Live in trees. Although this one, obviously, not so much. Because... Well, this is what makes it so interesting, isn't it? Is it has this additional uh, behavioural aspect, which actually enables it to live across quite a wide area. 
Yes, it's actually the most northernmost ranging species from the whole family Hylidae. Mm. So of all the tree frogs, it's the most northern ranging, which is quite a cool fact. Kind of the equivalent of our adder being the most northern ranging snake. America, which is quite high latitude for frogs, has got the most northern ranging tree frog. Yeah. So they spread all the way down into like South America and, um, well, all over the tropics, you get sort of generically tree-based frogs, but this one comes <laughs> higher than most, which is quite cool. Yeah. Or higher than all the others, I should say. And that's sort of what they're looking at in this paper to get right into it, is that they're trying to see if the differences in climate affect how the frogs behave and whether that behaviour is actually a reaction to climate or not. That's right. So they were kind of expecting that frogs in the northernmost part of the range would have less time they could be out and about because it's more likely to be cooler up there and less of a kind of tropical climate. So the frogs that live there would be kind of shut indoors or in their case underground, staying nice and warm and cosy more of the time than their southern counterparts who would be basically living in a permanent summer spring bake for the frogs loving life Just loving exactly it's this fossorial behavior as the way they can get around harsher climates yeah so that was their kind of like general hypothesis if you will before we go into it should we sort of give a brief description of what these frogs actually look like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. go for it they're kind of well, i mean i haven't got a lot they're greeny brown and they've got more <laughs> brown on the back so they're greeny brown with broad brown blotches. I can see them now. <laughs> <laughs> Am I painting a beautiful picture of the lovely frog? They're quite cool. They're found in Arizona, in the USA, and all along the west coast of Mexico, like you just said. So, mm. yeah, from north to south, their range is quite large. And before we start, as well, the other thing um, which we've been reprimanded in the past for not doing is defining a term. So... I mean, climate seasonality kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? I feel so. Yeah. Different seasons have different uh, temperatures, precipitation, all the stuff that you'd associate with climate and how that shifts over a period of time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the other one is niche, which we talk about a lot, but um, in case this is your first ever episode of Herp Highlights, a niche is just the place in an environment that an animal finds itself and chooses to live. So, for example, the niche of a tree frog would be probably nestled in the canopy, eating some insects, would be your average tree frog niche. Um, Obviously, for these ones, it might be slightly different, being as they're burrowing frogs, but yeah, that's what a niche is anyway. Yeah, and they they actually have, well, have a bonus bit of stipulation to what they define as a niche, and that's without any immigration, so without any shifting Uh, to take into account other aspects of you know get someone that's more suitable for them they are living in one zone one niche and they're not you know yeah. flying somewhere else and they can kind of reproduce and continue their species without doing bits and bobs elsewhere exactly yeah <laughs> yeah so there you go niche which is key to this paper because the whole point is that these frogs are quite limited in where they can go because they're not birds and they're not mammals they're not big wide-ranging animals so where they are and how that climate is where they're living is critical to their survival because they can't just up sticks and move. They're basically trapped. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, they did talk about that, didn't they? They talked yeah. about um, birds having it pretty good because they can just migrate to a different corner of a globe. If they don't, if they don't fancy wintering in Siberia, they can just fly to Tenerife and have it made. <laughs> Whereas a frog doesn't have that luxury. A frog just has to like dig a small hole and live in it for well, exactly. for the winter it's, time. It's got to deal with it in different ways, and digging is one of those ways. Yeah. 
So they wanted to find out whether or not these frogs were behaving differently in the different climates in which they are found. Yeah. And uh, in order to do this, they actually looked at loads and loads of observational records of these frogs and where they'd been found to get a good idea of the extent of their range. Mm. Uh, and where people had spotted them and when. And that also allowed them to work out when these frogs were active because being as they spend time in burrows, if people are actually finding them, then there's a good chance they're out and about and active when they're being found. Um, After that, they did a bit of modelling, which uh, we're loath to go into too much detail about because we frankly don't understand it. uh, (laughs) Well, well, at least this one we're a little bit more familiar with the the methods than uh, floating turtles. Yeah, floating turtles was... Incredibly complicated. But uh, yeah, for these guys, they modelled... Basically what they did was they looked at the weather in July, which is when most of their observations were across the whole range. Yes, and it was... What's critical about July is over the entire frog range, the frogs could be active during that time. Because there's no point modelling climate based on when there are no frog observations Mm. because you've got nothing to... You have no idea where they actually are during that time and to have that maximum range. Yeah, that actually confused me when I was first reading the paper because I thought they'd done something even more complicated where they'd worked out the the perfect time and temperatures and everything for all the frogs to be out in different parts of their range and then modelled where that period was across all the ranges, yes. which would have been like a whole nother layer of complication, which I don't even know if that... I mean, maybe I think you, I think you could do that, yeah. but you'd have to get into um, like biophysical conditions the frogs would do it, do it a very sort of... Oh, what's the right word? Physiological way. Physiological way of what do these frogs need to survive and build it up from base principles. Yeah. Which sounds rather complicated and you'd need very good details on the frogs' lives and life history throughout their range. Which, considering this was only based on 95 uh, observations of these frogs, I presume that the details of their life history is relatively... Well, not as detailed as you'd need it to be to do something that complicated. Yeah, no, definitely not. So... Thankfully, it was easier to understand than all that. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, um, we actually just had this model of when it was good for the frogs to come out, which happened to be July. And then what they did was they grabbed a load of um, data from weather stations. And with that, they were able to see when these perfect climatic conditions were happening all across the frogs' range mm. and work out whether or not their window of activity was more or less limited in different areas. Yes, which I thought was very clever. It yeah. is. It's all. What's quite nice about this is it a lot. The vast majority of this is based on existing accessible data sets. Like if you had the know-how, you could go out and do this. Yeah, and it can actually with any anything you wanted. It's all all there and accessible and available. I mean, I've pulled data from a couple of the databases that I've had just to look at it. Really? Yeah. I mean, I can't remember what it was even. In aid of, but I have. <laughs> I love this because, like you say, they basically just, I don't know, they're not quite citizen science projects, or maybe some of them are, the places they got the observation records. But this reminds me of every time I'm out anywhere with you and there might be a bird. <laughs> You're just like, oh, mate, let me do it down on my lap. And I'm just like, nerd. But then actually what you're doing is incredibly valuable. Well, yeah, because it, it comes 10 years back from and, now, yeah, they, yeah, people could be using this to map the ranges of birds. So, Well, ten, they're doing it now. They, I mean, are they? Yeah. What? <laughs> Future today. All, it's all being fed in because it's all active stuff because it's all to do with how climates are shifting, how migrations are shifting, and basic observational data is critical when it's paired with other data sets like climate. Yeah, bash. So there you go. They basically just got all this data which some kindly strangers have been good enough to put. Well, 
Some museums <laughs> had it as well, I don't know. Yeah, but the... Don't get um, too far into it, but... Yeah, so all this data was fed into, actually, two different different models. Uh, one was the generic algorithm of rule set prediction, and the other was Maxent, which stands for Maximum Entropy Approach. And so they ran two models to see which was going to predict both, and then tested that against a subset of uh, all the frog occurrences. Long story short, the GARB approach was the best, beat out Maxent, like, flat out. <laughs> and what that gave them, basically, without getting into the details of what GARB did, is that you run it multiple, multiple times over multiple iterations because it's various different variables and rules competing against each other and it works out whatever's the best one and whatever. Run it 100 times and what they had at the end were different maps. So they summarised all those maps into one map, heat map, where the hotter the square were the more times each run of that uh, algorithm said that the frog could be there. If that made sense. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes sense to me. I think so. So you run it a hundred times, you have a hundred different possible range maps, and then you summarise those range maps into the hottest squares where all ten, all a hundred of those runs agreed, coolest of those squares were only a couple of those runs said the frog could have been there at that time. Right. Um, once you actually get your data out, it's incredibly insightful. Yes. Yeah, and I suppose just work... I mean, the ins and outs of working out how to run that algorithm and program was probably probably quite frustrating for them, but... <laughs> well, I presume they did. Oh, come, in, come on, these guys know what they're doing. Yeah, they maybe they do. Yeah, they, they probably do. But either way, it's, an, it's quite impressive. And like you say, the fact that most of the data they were inputting was already available it makes it really cool because um there's no reason why people can't read this methodology and replicate it with lots of different other species so once they had their results from their algorithm which was a series of maps which was a series of maps so yeah once they had all their series of maps and they analyzed them looked at them and what they found was that the amount of area with conditions which were suitable for the frogs to be active decreased as time went on from july Yes, so, it's important to note before that is their maps were produced for every single month of the year. Yes. It wasn't just summarised across years. It was looking at monthly variation of climate. So you can pick out these seasonal changes because there's no point shoving all this data in and just getting out yearly. This is where the frogs can be when you're trying to look at change. Yeah, exactly. That, that would kind of withdraw the, any element of seasonality from it. And yeah. yeah. Their title wouldn't make any sense then. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what they did, they looked at these maps and, yeah, like I said, it turned out from July onwards, there was getting to be less and less areas where the frogs could come out. What was really interesting about this, though, was that the activity ranges disappeared first from the northern parts of their range and then slowly trickled down to, I think it was about January, where it was finally mm. too cold and too dry for them to be out in the southernmost part of their range. Yeah. So what that showed these researchers was that the frogs in the southernmost part of the range, exactly as predicted, had an easier time of it than the frogs in the northernmost part of the range. Yeah, they had a larger portion of the year that they could be out actively foraging and doing whatever frogs do with their lives. Yeah, and therefore, the ones in the northernmost part of their range had to spend more time being fossorial and hiding underground. Now, what's cool about this is that, essentially, like evolutionary theory, you've got ways in which animals can evolve to tolerate their environments. We mentioned migration earlier on, so yep. some animals just straight up, up and leave. 
You can also have physiological traits. So these frogs might have evolved, for example, to be extremely... I mean, it's hard to think of an adaptation a frog could have to be cold tolerant, I guess. Uh, thicker skin, maybe skin, fatter. Fatter, so yeah. So you've got a lower surface oh, yeah, to higher. volume ratio. Yeah, that would work. Blubber. <laughs> a blubber frog. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if the frog we're going to discuss later turns out to have blubber. It's pretty monstrosity. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, so they didn't evolve physiological traits, so thick skin or anything like that. What they evolved instead was behavioural traits. Yes. So these frogs adapted to their environment by squirreling themselves away underground and waiting for the good times to come back around. And this is something I had a little bit of a look up further on. And there's, a, there's another paper they mentioned by uh, Nomura et al. 2009 that looks into the evolutionary origin of fossorial frogs and more specifically the actual digging behaviour of these frogs. And what they, basically they do a phylogenetic study and look at what traits evolved first by sort of back tracing common traits between related species. And what they find is that hind leg digging, which is what this this uh, frog we're talking about. The lowland burrowing tree frog. Exactly. is quite a basal trait. This was what burrowing frogs tended to do first. And it makes a, a lot of sense that it's basal because frogs we know are salatory, which is a posh word for hopping, for movement, using their back legs. So you've got very strong back legs already. You might as well turn that around and make use of that to dig burrows as opposed to having to adapt and create a whole new method to dealing with harsh climate. Yeah, evolution is a lot like water, isn't it? It takes the easiest possible route most of the time. Well, it does. Interestingly, though, Hylidae is one of the few families that have both hind limb digging frogs and front limb digging frogs. And it seems like front limb digging has evolved multiple times in frog lineages. So it's this, this example of convergent evolution where the same traits come out but completely unrelated. It hasn't had some sort of common ancestor. They all come out yeah. independently. So lots of frogs in lots of different places have evolved the same method of digging with their front legs, despite being not related. Yeah, exactly. And although this one, I keep forgetting the name. Of frog. Lowland burrowing tree frog. This it's not the most catchy of names. Frog. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> another good descriptor, it. though. Yeah, others do. And it, it, well, it's quite interesting. This one is just reacting to climate for digging, because the front limb digging species seem to not use it as a uh, reaction to climate as much, but more a foraging technique. Because, of course, you've got to be facing forward if you're going digging for t- subterranean prey. Ah, so they're not digging to stay underground, they're digging to hunt for worms. Yeah. And a fantastic example is the turtle frog, linking previous episode to this episode. The turtle frog, or uh, Myobacterus goldi, is... I don't know if... You've seen pictures of this little guy. He's just this fat, small, pink frog with a blunt face <laughs> who smashes into the termite mounds. Oh, yeah, that one. Yeah, I think I tweeted about this guy. Someone... Exactly. I was, yeah. I was made up that he, he popped up in a in a paper. Yeah, he's, that's a, they are funny little frogs. Yeah, going after termites, front legs, smashing in, eating the termites. But that's that's one of these front leg digging guys as opposed to our holiday guy that we're talking about here. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, those frogs are great. I There was a really funny post on Twitter about... What are they, what's their common name? 
Turtle frog. Yeah, be like the turtle frog today. Smash into the... <laughs> like, what is it? Smash headfirst into a termite mound and feast on the terrified inhabitants. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, it was just nice nice seeing them come up. <laughs> they're weird looking frogs as well. They've got like a... Their, their face looks like a fuselage of an aeroplane attached to a really rotund, <sighs> grotesque Absolute, body. Absolutely bizarre. They just look like a battering ram, which I guess they pretty much yeah. are. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so this... Fossorial behaviour that we've discussed the entire time with these uh, lowland burrowing tree frogs is quite a common adaptation to frogs which live in temperate climates. So Mm. those climates which experience pronounced seasonality when winter's cold but summer's warm, it is really beneficial to be able to hide underground, um, often estivate, which is kind of where you just be inactive for a time. You, You know, your physiological processes slow down. It just makes a lot of sense because they can't, they're and they're exothermic, so they can't be active when the temperature isn't warm enough. So they just have to hunker underground, stay cool. What's the other side of the coin to the Gila monster situation with temperatures being too hot to deal with? So same solution, completely different, unrelated species. But hey, it's a cheap and easy behavioural adaptation that can be. Well, if you've got really big legs, you might as well make use of them, right? Yeah, exactly. So essentially, broadly speaking, reptiles and amphibians have a narrow window of climate where they can be successful. And anything below or above that, they have to come up with novel strategies to try and get by. So yeah, I think that's good. You know, this, as it turns out, the lowland burrowing tree frog does use its fossorial habits in different ways, depending on how northern or southern it is. It's directly, well, it looks like it's directly linked to climate. With activity periods matching climate patterns, seasonality, yeah. It makes you wonder if those frogs down south, because the frogs up north are finding enough to eat within that limited window, so it almost makes it seem as though the frogs in the south can spend time on their hobbies or relaxing <laughs> with their friends, because they've got so much time to find food. They can and presumably, on the coast, go for a little swim, yeah. And presumably food is more abundant in a warmer climate anyway, so... But they may also have to do with higher competition. So uh, maybe all the benefits go. are countered yeah. by uh, yeah, various probably, other predators and yeah. things like that. They're probably the only ones clinging on to life because everything else couldn't manage to keep up evolutionarily. Maybe. Hmm. I don't know. That would be an interesting... I don't know if anybody's done a uh, sort of fitness comparison across the entire range. I know there's a guy be... doing research on um, a toad which exists in the... It exists in the Arctic Circle, and they're kind of looking at why, how it like physiologically copes with that. But I'm not sure if they actually released any papers. I heard them on a podcast, so keep keep an ear out for that. <laughs> so someone is doing some research on like northern survival and things. Um, but yeah, I think that sort of neatly summarises that paper. I think so. I hope so. Right. So paper. Dos. Paper two. Paper two. Uh, this is by Anderoni Burgo, Mercurio, and Rosa, 2013, Spatial Ecology of Scaphiophorini Gottle Bay yeah. in the canyons of Islo Massif, Madagascar. Herpetologica. Now, this is one that took place in Madagascar, which is pretty cool. Mm. Madagascar is a place we frequently return to. Well, I mean, it helps that there is an absolutely phenomenal amount of perpetifauna biodiversity there and so many of the species are fascinating and being discovered as we speak and so there's a lot of new research going on and 
Well, I mean, look at the Malagasy Rainbow Frog. Hmm. How could we? How could we not have one paper on this guy? Yeah, I mean, it's a spectacular animal. Like, really cool. It looks like someone's just taken a boring tan-coloured frog and then just like flicked paint all over the back of it. We're gonna make green. this guy special. Yeah, <laughs> this is a treat frog. <laughs> yeah, I like this paper because, um, like you say, in Madagascar, there's a lot of species being discovered, and it's awesome and it's fascinating. However, uh, that does sometimes lead to there not being that much research on the actual ecology of the species that have been discovered, primarily because it takes a lot more... I don't, know, I don't want to say it takes a lot more effort, but it, it takes more time um, and it's... Well, it, it's good practice to describe the species you're about to study before just going on and studying it, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I that's not to say there aren't a lot of species in Madagascar that have been known for like decades. Hmm. Um, nevertheless, this is actually the first time anyone had done radio telemetry on a frog in Madagascar which I thought was pretty cool. Very cool. Um, radio telemetry, as we always say, is where you tack, some way tack on transmitter, which beeps a radio signal out. It's not audible to the human ear. You have to have special apparatus, and then you point your little doohickey at the animal and it beeps, and you can drag yeah, it down. In this case, I tied them on with a little bit of yeah. uh, a little bit of strength. It, it spanned me out because I was looking at the photo of the frog with the transmitter attached and I was like, how on earth is that attached <laughs> to that frog? Like, obviously, experience being with snakes. Little it, harness. Yeah. Little frog harness. Yeah, you, you know, frogs don't have the, the limbs that you can tie things to, whereas mm. frogs quite neatly do. And their back legs meet in like a little V and in the inside portion, so I guess what would be their kind of... Hips. Hips? Front yeah, hips. it's the front hips, because their legs are backwards, so they don't really have a groin so much. They're kind of weird. Frogs are weird. Yeah, the way they're put together is different and strange. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they basically just like tie this piece of cotton around the frog's legs, and then they have the transmitter trailing behind. And seemingly, I mean, they kept them in tanks for a bit to check they could hop around normally. Yeah, and they made very specific reference that they didn't do any sort of surgical implant, because they didn't have sufficiently good hygienic conditions to do it safely which is always nice to read in a paper that there was very explicit consideration for the study animal's health um, mm. you don't want cowboy research going out no. shoving transmitters in frings and, no yeah. they do say that they might their transmitters might have had an influence on the mortality of some of these frogs but the way i see it is that this information is like properly properly critical to conservation and there's even a whole section in the discussion about conservation implication, and that's exactly why these researchers were going out. So yeah, as long it's it's not a particularly nice adage to go by. With you need to break a few eggs to make an omelette, but yeah, I don't feel like there were many eggs broken no. here, and there were no and eggs that were, they were maybe a little bit cracked. Yeah, and I, I don't think there was any explicit evidence that the transmitters actually caused. No, harm. I don't think so. Um, no. So yeah, you know, one of those things. They did some really cool research anyway. And uh, whatever, frogs die. They do die. They live a little, very little time. I mean, if you want to get into some of the deaths of these frogs. I do have a little bit on the deaths of these frogs. Yeah, they, so do I. You go on, crack on. Well, the one I, one I looked into was um, a couple of them being eaten by Leohedridon modestus. Wasn't it only one of them was eaten by Leohedridon? No, two. Two? Two, yeah. Because there was two species of snake that ate the frogs. What was the other species of snake? Madagascarophus um, colubrinus. Which even warranted its own paper. There's a Rosa et al. 2010 paper about them tracking down these snakes and working out that this is what happened. Because I think we, um, 
there's quite limited dietary information for a lot of the species in Madagascar. And this is quite a critical little piece of information to have published is these snakes eat these frogs, especially when the frogs are not super widespread and common. Mm. You need to know what sort of pressures they're under. So did they actually use their radiotelemetry equipment to track yeah, the snake? Yeah, th- that's how they first got clued onto it. Is suddenly this uh, frog was moving really fast and erratically. I thought a frog can do that. And yeah, he was inside a um, a decent sized snake. That exact thing has happened to me in the field. And it, it was both, <laughs> it was at first exciting and then it quickly progressed to oh, confusing no. and then deeply upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> Rest in peace. <laughs> TRMA21. <laughs> <laughs> Lived a good life. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... they Some of them were eaten by snakes. Some of them just randomly seemed to just drop dead. You know, it might be that it was the breeding season and life was being hard on them. Who knows? And then another couple savagely, brutally, actually drowned during mating aggregations. So they yes. Got, they got so excited in the mating frenzy that they actually drowned in a pool. <sighs> I mean, that's terrible. Amphibian life, man. Yeah, so brutal. They just, some of them drowned in mating aggregations, which is hideous. Sorry that happened to you, the frogs. But I guess that's life. Maybe their genes were passed on and that was their final sacrifice. Or maybe their genes were just not good enough. Maybe getting that excited about mating that you drown <laughs> isn't a good trait to pass on to your offspring. Who knew? Who could have possibly foreseen that? Oh dear. Anyway, aside from the frog's mortality, some died. Um, 14 out of 36 died, but you know, they're probably short lived animals anyway, it would seem like. So. Well, and if you don't know the turnover of the frog population anyway, who's to say? They did say that, yeah. And the other thing is, you know, they're a fossorial frog species. So the majority of their life, they're underground. And I can't imagine that the mortality underground is anything like what it is above ground. I mean, a lot of species, the times they are most vulnerable is when they're moving around and actively doing stuff. And when everything you have to do in your life is condensed into a very short period of time for for these fossorial frogs, you've got to imagine that that's just going to be an elevated time of mortality anyway. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So um, these Malagasy rainbow frogs, the idea behind this paper was that they were trying to work out whether or not, well, essentially the background to this paper is that there was a paper by Cretini et al. in 2008, which suggested that all of the frogs they sampled, except for just a very few, shared a similar haplotype. Um, So they must all be at least distantly related, um, which would mean that there was quite a lot of um, interbreeding and gene sharing amongst the entirety of the population. Yeah, it's quite a homogenous population as, as they go, yeah. Yeah, because um, you'd, ex- you'd kind of anticipate that these frogs with, you know, you'd imagine, I mean, I mean, I guess that's why, that's exactly why they did this paper. It is, yeah. Because they were like, how can this be that these frogs are so readily interbreeding when... They don't go anywhere. Yeah, they, they, they live under or rocks. Or they look like they don't go anywhere. They're just living underground, having a quite a chill life. How, yeah. Yeah. How are they getting about? So they thought, we'll test this out by attaching some radio transmitters. And follow them around. Yeah. Perfect. Follow them yeah. around and see if they're actually doing anything. Which, as it turns out, by and large, they weren't. Yes. They were pretty sedentary, all in all, I would say. Would you not agree? Yeah. Um, yeah, not only were they not moving around very much, but they hardly even saw the frogs. Something like, what was it, 49 times at 461 tracks did they actually see the frog. So they're not moving around very much. They're spending the vast majority of their time apparently undercover, under rocks, in 
this, I mean, what we haven't mentioned is actually where they where they are. Oh yeah, sure, sure. So the Islo Massif is this this canyoned area where if you you look at pictures, it's pretty obvious. If you turned up and thought, all right, I'm going to find some frogs, there was one place you'd go, and that's straight into the canyons, because the tops look remarkably dry and inhospitable mm. for a soggy amphibian. It's essentially just a huge chunk of limestone, with a lot of it being bare rock and, like, savanna grass, and, like you say, these canyons, which are Well, they're know, in little microclimates. Yeah, yeah, they look really lush and green, and there's, like, these, like, rivers of green through just a dry, bare landscape, which is uh, burned by... Burned by humans, isn't it? People actually burn them to manage the grassland. Um, and yeah, that's that basically leaves these little tiny refuges in the in the canyons, which mm. even they themselves are somewhat deforested from the natural vegetation that is supposed to be in them. But nevertheless, these little frogs seem to prevail in the in the moist gullies. Yeah. So yeah, this sandstone is also pocked with loads and loads of tiny little holes where pebbles have fallen out as it's eroded. And that's one of the places, like you said, these frogs love to hide. They're under rocks. They'll burrow down into the sand. They'll sit in little rock crevices. So even finding them, like decent, uh, decent distances up the side of these canyons, up the side of these these cliffs, it's just absolutely remarkable climbing ability for something for a frog that doesn't look like it could climb over a small rock. Really, it looks no. like it would get halfway over and fall on its back very and have to chubby. turn around and leaf. <laughs> yeah, they're really chubby, squat little guys, aren't they? They're really kind of weird looking creatures. Um, How high up do they get? Several meters. Several oh, meters. Um, yeah, good, <laughs> good quantification. But previous studies had shown that they could actually climb high, didn't they? They'd been seen doing this, and so that was one of the things that prompted this study. Was oh well, actually, maybe they can. Uh, maybe they're more maybe, competent than they look. Yeah, maybe they're not <laughs> as stupid and slow, and ponderous as they appear. <laughs> um, one thing that made me laugh was their descriptions of some of these sedentary beasts. So one of the male frogs that they tracked actually didn't leave the exact rock it was found on for the entirety of the time they studied it. Oh, I mean, if you've got a good a good rock, you're I mean, not going to risk leaving it. What if another frog comes in <laughs> yeah. and takes your space? I don't know. I've, I've spent many weeks on particular rocks, but I always find after a few days, I see a rock in the distance and I think, <laughs> oh man. Maybe that rock's better. The rocks are always greyer. On the other side, or something. This frog was playing a long game. Yeah, he was. He was chilling. Um, that was a male frog, and there was another frog which was a female, and she, oh, she didn't actually appear from under the sand the entire time they tracked her. They tracked her for weeks, and she never actually surfaced. <laughs> she was just like loving it in the hole. This is where yeah. I'm gonna stay. So yeah, the I think true definition of fossorial. Yeah, fossorial sedentary beasts, mm. which which is pretty cool. And that was that was more or less what they concluded, wasn't it? These these frogs. They do move a bit, and yes. when it rains, they move a bit. And in the breeding season, they have to move a bit. And if it gets warmer, they move more. Well, it's around 15, 16 degrees, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's they're, the minimum. They're, they're peak. Well, like... yeah, I don't think it was their. I don't think that was their peak. But what it was was that was the minimum temperature where they would actually start to go. But then the warmer the warmer temperature was, they'd actually move more on top of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it would. Basically, once it hit 15, 16, think they would start to move, but they might do little ones. Yeah. Right, yes. And then they have the capacity to do more under higher temperatures. Yeah, but below 15, like you say, they were just like, no, nah, nah. I'm going out, staying under my sand, chilling. Which, it's a bit brisk. Yeah, I can fully identify with that. I wouldn't want to go out at night if it was cold and 15 degrees, and I never will, and I never have. <laughs> 
<laughs> just stay under my rock, damn it. Yeah, but it's like we said earlier, it's typical of an exothermic species. They're limited by these little narrow windows where they can do stuff. And yeah, they don't want to if they can't. So, like we said, the whole point of this study was to try and work out how all these animals are related distantly. And the thought was that the adults must be travelling along these canyons during mm. potentially during the mating period where they might be looking for mates. But as it turned out, it seems very unlikely, being no. as they were entirely fossorial and sedentary yeah. in their habits. Two of the individuals went around 100 metres. That was it. Like that, They're your two biggest movements. Two individuals going 100 metres or so. Yeah. That's, you'd have to have a lot more movement to see full-on gene flow across these canyons, I feel. So I thought it was quite cool. They sort of postulate this idea that the cyclonic rains, so they have like real heavy rains in February and March, and that coincides with the frogs being in their larval stage. So when the frogs are tadpoles or froglets and these huge heavy rains come, the whole canyons are flooded and the babies are washed all over the place. And then therefore they're all mixing together because the mm. larvae may end up miles from where they were hatched. And uh, in that way, they end up breathe, breeding with their neighbours and the whole population gets mixed. Gets in. mixed all up. Yeah. And the other critical bit of that story is... I mean, we've already said that they are surprisingly decent climbers. Having that uh, flexibility, that adaptability, plasticity, exactly, means that when they get to wash, you know, get washed out to these weird and wonderful places, they've got a decent chance of establishing a population because they can actually clamber out and get to somewhere good. They're not just completely prey to the weather and winds. Yeah. Yeah, and they're not so specific in their habitat requirements that they need like a particular plant, like a lot of frogs which are endangered are kind of scuppered by the fact that they need bromeliads or something like that. Yeah, something very specific. Where they end up, all they need is a little pool and a rock to hide under and they can make a go of it. I actually wondered when I read that, if these cyclone floods are so intense, could it not be that that's also transporting adults? They don't mention it in the paper, but it seems to me that these are like little thumb-sized frogs. Really? No... Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe they are a bit bigger, but nevertheless, okay. I feel like Ben's making the shape. Ben's sort of, I'll narrate to the listeners. A Ben's showing medium me... medium tomato. A medium, yeah, I mean, that's a buffalo tomato, is it not? Is that a thing? Is that a buffalo? That's a buffalo mozzarella. So it, it's like a... Salad tomato. A salad tomato-sized blob. Okay, now we're on Wikipedia. Oh, shush, don't shush me, you're on Wikipedia. What? 30 centimetres. No, 30 millimetres. 30 millimetres. That's tiny, that's thumb-sized, man. I told mate, you they're thumb-sized. If you've been bitten You think that's something. three centimetres, mate? You've got about... That's a... That's a... The inside, that's... <laughs> you, you've got to be kidding me. No one's thumbs that big, that wide. We need a ruler. But either way, all I'm saying is... Only professional hitchhikers have thumbs that big. <laughs> or like... <laughs> professional hitchhikers. <laughs> Ridiculous. So, yeah... These frogs, I believe, could they themselves, the very adults, be washed away in a cyclonic flood? I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to Thank say. Thank you. That's all you had to say. We didn't have to go down that crazy rabbit hole, but here we are. <laughs> Sweet. So, yeah, really cool little frogs. Um, the Madagascan rainbow, or Malagasy, I should say, rainbow frog. Yeah, I did just want to... We, we usually mention a little bit about the conservation status of these guys because that's what a lot of this research is quite rightly motivated by um and these guys are currently threatened by habitat destruction and also the pet trade uh in previous years you know numbers have suffered because of people pulling them out and exporting them and they are now a 
cites Appendix 2 listed species. So that's the Convention for International Trade on Endangered Species. That's the ticket. And originally, prior to 2014, there was a quota of a 1,000 frogs being taken out per year. That's now been reduced to absolutely nothing. Mm. Can't get these guys. And what's also quite sad is that, well, according to um, another uh, article by uh, Anderone et al. in 2005, so there hasn't been any successful captive breeding yet, and it still doesn't, still as of 2016, the IUCN don't make mention of any successful captive breeding, and directly mention that this should be something that should be explored to try and alleviate any pressure on these frogs in mm. their wild habitats. You'd think it would be quite easy to stimulate captive breeding, given the fact that they're triggered so heavily well, by, think, by rain. Yeah, the trick is is with these explosive breeding frogs is you have to get everything you know right at one mm. one time, and then the rest of your time, I suppose, is relatively wasted. Mm. I suppose it's a lot more to do with the inactive period than it is to do with the active period, then, mm. because you, in Maybe. captivity, it might be quite hard for people to not feed a frog for however many months of the year and keep it cool. Well, and if there hasn't been much research yeah, well, on maybe this will actually history and stuff... Well, even this. I mean, they had data loggers, so little temperature and um, humidity recording devices all over the frog habitat, even yeah. in the water where they were nearby. So hopefully, now that this paper's out... I mean, it came out in 2013, but hopefully this is helping to spare on some captive breeding efforts. Oh, no, I'm sure absolutely that any information on wild populations is going to feed into a captive environment, even if it's you know just removing a couple of possibilities or... Yeah. And if no, I think it's very useful. And if you're interested in having one of these as a pet, then it's really important that you do ascertain it was captive bred because um, their CITES, it only counts for going across borders. So the danger is that once they're in a country... Yeah, you start losing track of the uh, dodginess. <laughs> yeah, they pass through a few hands. So yeah, give it give it some thought. But yeah, awesome little frogs. Mm. I do actually have one more point just to finish up on. God, another... you and your points. Will it ever end? Another on, Anderone uh, 2005 one. Just a fun one is the sound they make. Because what we're about oh, to jump yeah. into is heavily sound and voice orientated. So oh, we have... no, I've been really looking forward to hearing this. So you're going to play the clip. I've not heard this clip, so I'm looking forward to hearing it. And then we'll overlay it so the listeners can hear it too. Yeah. Unfortunately, this one's not as great quality as it could be. I, I... It turns out it's actually quite hard to track down a lot of frog noise. And this, I believe, has come from a compilation CD uh, compiled by Vences and Law at some point, and it's a little preview that I found online. I think recorded by Androni. It's difficult to tell because it's on some Italian museum website, and I don't speak Italian. But here it is. Okay. Wow, that is eerie. It is eerie. It, I'm not sure if that's, that's got to be the a playback quality, quality or or what, but it's. Really cool. So is that there must be a whole horde of frogs making I, that noise? I think so. Yeah. It doesn't sound like one individual. No. Wow. Quite cool. That really that took me to the uh, solo massif there. <laughs> shut my eyes and I was down in a canyon. It was moist. Surrounded by thumb-sized frogs. Yeah, thumb-sized frogs. But the water, they were getting taken by the water. <laughs> <laughs> Turned into a horrible nightmare. Yeah. Oh, nice one. Oh, man. We got some more of those uh, little sound bites coming up. So, yeah. Steady yourselves. This is pretty exciting.
audio then that was what uh, that's what topic that seems to have brought up your recording of yeah. the delightful Malagasy rainbow frog I think that segues us neatly into the third and final paper today it does this is by Thomas Suyes Bijou and B uh, published in 2014 again in plus one so you can go out there and read it yourself if you want to learn all about the vocal behavior of the elusive purple frog of India Masika Batrachus cyadrensis, a fossorial species endemic to the Western Ghats. Yeah, the purple frog, possibly the most bizarre, hideous, horrific, monstrous beast you'll ever lay your eyes on. They are utterly gross. I mean, I I'd seen a photo of one before. And I'd thought it was a joke. I didn't <laughs> think it was a real like, animal. They look like someone's mashed together uh, a mole and a deflated a purple, purple balloon. Yeah, no. And it's covered in slime. It reminds me of, like, jelly babies. It looks like a jelly baby. A melted jelly baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. Look them up. Because no description will do them justice. It looks like, like someone left a normal frog out in the sun for a week. <laughs> and this is what you'd get. This bloated, purple, gross mess. You left him on the dashboard of your car. No. <laughs> I, um, I showed this... I showed photos of this frog to Maya, my partner. You know her. And, uh... Some quotes from Maya after seeing... Actually, it was the video of the frog croaking and yeah, running around, yeah, which we're going to show. Forget looking at photos. Yeah. Jump onto the... I've shoved a link in the show notes that takes you to the supplementary material of this article, which is one of these guys waddling along on some mud, doing its old frog call. Oh, that's just being gross, basically. Just, just, just being, being a waddling mess, a waddling nightmare. <laughs> and uh, anyway, yeah, I showed you this video to Maya, and the first thing she said was, it's hideous, which I think that's fair enough. Yeah, it's just it a bad reaction. Yeah. Then she had a few questions for me about this frog. She knew we'd been reading up on it. The first of which was, does it always look like that? <laughs> As if this was just like a phase it was going through. But I actually thought, fair question, because... They look bloated and beefed yeah, up. Like, so maybe they're anti-predators well, sort of Yeah, when like I saw the photos, too, yeah. that big bloated look to it, I thought, like you did, that it had puffed up because the cameraman was yeah, like, accosting it. it. Out. Yeah. But then after seeing that video, I realised, no, this is the frog in life. It just yeah. it happens to be that grossly bloated appearance. She also said, why is it so shiny? <laughs> Which I thought was quite funny. Um, well, and, sogginess, yeah. Yeah, and um, it looks like a beating heart, <laughs> which... It's not where you want to look animal to look. I mean, it's just gross. <laughs> Looks like a beating purple heart. It was awful. Um, but yeah. Marvellous. So this purple frog, elusive purple frog, I have to say, I really hope that I can one day publish a paper which has the word elusive in the title. Vocal behaviour of the elusive purple frog. Yeah. Of all the words they could have used to describe this frog, they went for elusive. Well, yeah, because if you didn't, people would be immediately put off. Super, super secretive. If you're going out looking for these guys, you've got a two-week window to do so, really, unless yeah. you want to excavate an entire forest. They spend 11 and a half months underground, don't they, like yeah. you say? What a boring way to live. Well, I don't know. They might be having a lovely party down there. We don't know. I doubt it. They were found, like, metres under the ground, like seven or eight metres under the ground. Well, I don't know about that. They said they were found 20 to 30 centimetres during this two-week period. That's how far they could get before they got dug out. Uh, yeah, no, they also mentioned like times where they found them like up to eight metres underground. How did they find them uh, eight metres underground? I think they were um, digging a well and one just showed up in their hole. Oh, right, okay. So yeah. it, was, it wasn't looking for a frog. It no, was, God. It was purely... Can you imagine that? That's like time team. 
times 20. <laughs> well, and you find is moving around. Yeah. No, this was when oh. they were, some local people in India were digging this well and they found this like grotesque bloated frog. Which, and I mean, then they decided to fill in the well, dig it somewhere else. elsewhere, <laughs> because I don't want to drink that water. This thing's horrible. This putrefied purple blob. This eldritch horror. <laughs> yeah, the eldritch slips between different dimensions unseen. That's how gross it is. Oh, dear. Well. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so do you know why this frog is called what it's called? Do you know? Purple what? frog? Yeah. Oh, it's because it's purple. No, you, you smile. It's called, the reason it's called Nasi Batrachus is... Sanskrit, which means nose, because although you don't notice it at first glance, it does have a protruding nose. Well, yeah, it's got a sort of mole face, like <laughs> yeah, I was saying. It does have features, unlike something like the turtle frog. Yeah, so, um, sorry, Nasika means nose in Sanskrit, and Batrakas means frog, so nose frog. Nose frog. Well, frog nose, actually, if frog, you put it the right nose. way around, if you trans- translate it directly. But then Sayadri... Uh, is synonymous for the Western Ghats, which is the region in which it's found. Okay, so yeah. that's quite nice. All the hills along the so you've got place and it's got a nose. Yeah, yeah, and also it's a frog. I mean, that's that's all you really need to know, I guess. Yeah, and the Western Ghats, we should mention where all this took place, are the hills along the west coast of the Indian subcontinent. Um, so if you imagine another hotspot for biodiversity, massively so. Yeah, and again, really, really threatened encroaching people and agriculture, etc, etc and holidays as well, a lot of people going on holiday to India and uncontrolled development for tourism is a threat to this frog certainly. Yeah So, the paper. Yes, yeah All about acoustics Yeah, all about the noises that these frogs Um, make Basically it was a surveying effort, went out there during this two week period and tracked down frogs and tried to understand a little bit about their calls and where they were calling and all sorts of associated environmental uh, conditions and size, shape and morphology of the frog doing the calling and seeing how those all connected to the call itself and the characteristics of that call. Yeah, they um, they quantified 19 different properties of these calls in an effort to work out what the frogs were doing. They were recording the calls of males and they concluded that they were advertisement calls, which yes. we talked about in episode two, didn't we? Which are these calls that the frogs make when they're trying to basically appear as if they are attractive to the opposite sex. Mm. It's kind of like a, a fitness thing. So they're demonstrating their fitness and making a big loud noise and attracting the females. And instead of going into these 19 different characteristics that is quite dry and detailed and probably means very little to anybody who doesn't know anything about sound so okay us, us yeah what we can do is play the actual call because wonderful paper plus one they've provided the actual audio files because part of the drive of this paper is to provide resources for folk who want to go out and do surveying and using calls as a proxy for actually finding the frog that's absolutely because right. there's one thing going out there and seeing the frog but it's way easier to hear the frog over a greater distance and you can actually do that remotely much more easily as well. Yeah, and less disturbance. Yeah. So we've got a frog. This is a frog that's actually currently underground, which is another amazing thing. These guys, are they don't even bother coming out of the ground to do their calling. They're sort of just below the surface, and they sound like this.
I like that. It's quite simple, effective. You can hear the other one calling back as well in that video, can't you? You can hear very faintly there's a second male frog in the distance. But they have a better recording later on for that. Oh, yeah. Which, <clears throat> this is something that they sort of vaguely noticed in the in the field, but couldn't get a good recording of. So they had two males in captivity. Yeah, they put them in a tub together, yeah, didn't they? to see how calls interacted. And unfortunately, their sample size wasn't big enough to actually see any patterns there. But yeah, they occasionally they were sort of responding. Other times they were calling over the top of each other. And again, lovely, uploaded a recording of this so we can play you that now. <laughs> that's yeah, funny there's a bit of back and forth there there's quite a bit of overlap and yeah, there's definitely some interaction going on it's a shame they didn't you know couldn't really examine it in any greater detail I can't help but find it comical though knowing what these frogs look like and just imagining <laughs> two of them like frantically screaming at each other for dominance like they're just oh god it's <laughs> like no you're not scaring anyone you're a moron <laughs> but yeah that 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 it really does demonstrate, doesn't it? And it's great because anyone else who wants to study these frogs now, like you say, can go out and know that that's the frog they're hearing. And what they can also do, which people haven't, I don't think, done yet with these frogs, but is compare that to the different sound frequencies of anthropogenic, so human-created noise. Yes, and see how those two interact. See if encroachment is going to have an additional impact on these guys. Yeah. Which hopefully it won't, but the likelihood is it might. So, you know, well, busy road. Exactly, and it also, you almost can't tell that until you test it because although you can see how their calls might uh, mix up you have no idea how the frogs themselves are going to react mm -hmm, exactly because for all we know these guys have a greater diversity in uh, in the uh, vocalization than they're demonstrating here yeah and the sound frequency they can hear the sound yeah. frequencies they can hear might be greater than what we can so they might hear things in traffic that we don't and they might hear a lot more nuance to that call than we actually hear well, which I is then deafened by so. traffic. <laughs> yeah. But what's interesting is that all the calls between all these individuals was pretty consistent. And they seem to suggest that there was more variation within individuals than there were between individuals. Mm. So conformist frogs. Very conformist. I, don't, I can't say I'm surprised. They don't seem like they're very inventive types. <laughs> <laughs> what a very constrained... Restricted population too. They're, they're endemic to this this Western Ghats area, right? And I don't suppose so I there's a that's... huge amount of dispersal in these animals, given that they're only active for two weeks. So anywhere they do go, they're only going to be going within a two week window. Well, and even then, they've got to, you know, dig around and make a good home for themselves too. It's, mm. it's they don't exactly look like long dispersing animals. If you mm. see, watch the video and see how this one walks. He doesn't look like he's going very far. <laughs> Built like a tank. Yeah. So there's another paper about these frogs um, by oh, yeah. Zachariah et al. 2012. And that paper um, gives a little bit more about the kind of natural history. It's actually really incredibly thorough and goes into all the different stages of the tadpoles. Um, and I have to say, even the tadpoles of this species are monstrous. They're the ones with the little suckers, right? Do they suck to... Yeah. yeah. They, uh, they look like a spade with a tail. They're weird. They've just got like this huge blunt head. Kind of the opposite of the adults, which is really weird. 
Um, and then they slowly metamorphose and, you know, every single stage during metamorphosis is hideous and grisly. <laughs> um, but it's really fascinating paper and they have a lot of cool images and, yeah, there's a few interesting little bits and bobs that these frogs do. Like we said, they only come out for two weeks, which is quite crazy. They also, males are much, much smaller than females. Mm. And when they mate, the males actually, if you imagine a normal frog, amplexus is where the male's hanging onto the female and they're mating. And then usually in most frogs, you get it where the male has his arms kind of like wrapped around behind the front legs of the female. And then he kind of like rides around, whatever. Female drops off the eggs, male drops off the sperm, standard. Um, with these guys, the males are so small that they actually stick themselves um, onto the female by like gripping the spine with their tiny little claw hand oh and you end up with this frog which is just like riding around piggyback on the female like not grasping seemingly onto not connected spine. yeah and they've just got this really ridiculous like vacant expression like they look like stupefied wombles like riding around on a ginormous female <laughs> and it's hilarious I would highly recommend that everyone looks up this Zachariah et al 2012 paper just to, just to see that image yeah really cool um, just another way in which this frog is weird. Yeah, yeah. The other rabbit warren that this paper led me down was there's actually a paper which came out on the 26th of July. So like really, really recently this Hot year. Hot off the press. Hot off the press, yeah. Um, and this one was by Philippa et al. And um, basically it's all about vocalisation in frogs and other animals. Mm. Um, what they This doesn't really pertain directly to the particularly frogs, but I thought it was interesting anyway. Over a century ago, Darwin had this idea that vocal expression of emotion had kind of a common ancestor and that in some distant way, all vertebrates are similar in the way that they convey emotion in the sounds they make. Mm. Um, and that emotion in vocalizations might date back to our earliest terrestrial ancestors. So if that hypothesis were true, we'd expect to find some universal elements to communication we um, could tell when a frog was sad basically or when a ben, frog was happy essentially ben that's exactly what it like is like we can do with dogs exactly you can tell from a dog that's a really great example you can yeah. tell exactly how a dog's feeling by the vocalization whether or not that's because we understand those particular calls con contextually is another exactly matter. Where, where it's come yeah um, where is it originated but yeah so there's already some studies which suggest that acoustic attributes of they call them aroused vocalizations so like stressed or angry or excited are shared across many species of mammals. But mm. this study by Philippa et al. actually took vocalizations from other taxa. So they used amphibians, reptiles, um, both birds and traditional reptiles, and mammals. And they tried to see whether or not humans who were listening could identify arousal in these calls. And to make it fair, they used people who could speak English and Mandarin and... There was one other language, German, to get kind of a reasonable spectrum of languages to make sure it wasn't just people who spoke English who could understand for some reason as if there was oh, yes. some nuance of English which allowed us to understand the animals, which doesn't make any sense, <laughs> but there you go. Um, and what they did find was after they played these recordings to the people, they could actually identify arousal in vocalizations across all the species that were tested. That's cool. Which is absolutely That's incredible. That's very neat. Absolutely incredible. So... Um, they think that's because that we use lots of different acoustic parameters, so different elements of noises, to work out what is arousal. 
Mm. Um, but we mainly rely on the fundamental frequency and what they call the sec- spectral center of gravity. Um, so basically, it's just a couple of things which are key that we hear and we know, well, that animal's stressed or that animal's excited. Um, and what that means is that um, the fundal, fundamental mechanisms of vocal emotion expression are shared amongst pretty much all vertebrates. And um, we could share them with virtually all animals, which is just... That's in- really fascinating. Absolutely insane. I um, mean, it does... Does it suggest common ancestor, or does it just suggest a rather remarkable instance of convergent evolution? Uh, yes. Yes. Is the answer to that, yes. One or the other. However, Or both. <clears throat> or both. Um, For some and not others. Yeah. Oh, they can't quite pick apart that yet, but the fact that Darwin suggested it, and now it's been found out, is cool. They don't know 100% if it's... Because, I mean, to look at whether or not there was a, a basal ancestor that came up with vocalization would be a whole nother paper but all they found yeah, out how, oh my gosh yeah that, i mean picking that apart fascinating, would it? be yeah I and mean, i'm sure maybe that's their next step but what they have found is that humans can understand some element of the emotion in the calls of birds reptiles and amphibians as well as mammals which is just mind-blowing mm. yeah i mean is that something that all animals share to some certain extent can they I wonder if it's just us being able to do that. Yeah, it does beg is the question whether or not frogs. It, but then, then you can, think... Can, can you, frogs tell when a bird's distressed? Yeah, but then you think, actually, the application it, of that to a bird would be really great. Like, But then, you know, there are animals which can understand the warning calls of other animals because well, they work... Yes, birds and monkeys mess- work in tandem. No, I know. But imagine if even sort of without sharing a predator and kind of in a weird kind of symbiosis. Imagine if birds could understand the calls of all frogs in some way. It would come in really handy for those birds because they could kind of extricate what the frogs were communicating about. They could understand if they'd been spotted by the frogs and all sorts of different stuff. I guess a lot of that would be contextual. But Yeah, well, that's the thing is how do you unpick it from just learnt behaviour? Hmm. With great difficulty and probably lab experiments. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, that's fascinating. I had no idea that that... What blows my mind is the variety of taxa. If you'd just gone mammals or something, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I can see It wouldn't see be that. that surprising, would it? Because but you'd think high-pitched squeals would be shot. To mm. think that I share some sort of common characteristics with a purple frog is just bizarre. Mm. Yeah. Thankfully, though, I can tell everyone who's listening, it's nothing to do with his appearance. I do have a nose, sir. You do have a nose... But you're not hideously bloated. <laughs> or purple. Or purple. That's, so, yeah, that's that's amazing. Yeah, I just thought that was a cool little aside, because vocalisation, it led me down as a rabbit one. That was actually Twitter that put me onto that paper, so thank you, Twitter. Good work. Yeah. But yeah, purple frogs. I think the main takeaway from that paper is just that purple frogs are utterly gross. They do, yeah, yeah. Um, kind of bizarre. They also lack um, the middle eardrum, which is found in other, other species. And it seems to be, along with some other frogs, there's a Boistel et al. 2013 paper that look at how frogs deal with not having a middle eardrum. And it looks like they use bones in their mouths to help with the uh, resonation of really? sound and calls. And that's how they do it. They use a different part of their body so that they don't need that. So they're not eardrum. missing out on the tympanum? No, they've just got another solution. But it, it seems to be quite an early... Uh, shift in, in some frogs. So is it is it possible that they never had a tympanum or they've evolved to lose it? 
Now that I don't know. No, well, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? But I do have another frog call. Oh, which one is this? A closely related frog called Seychellophyrinae gardineri, which is a frog From quite a closely, well, yeah, quite closely related to the the purple frog, because it seems that when all your plates all shifted around. This is where all your common ancestors are coming from, these, these Indian Ocean uh, species. And, well, I will play it, and you can judge. Was that it? That was it. That, was really... <laughs> that squeak. That <laughs> small, solitary, weak little squeak. <laughs> that was Com- so lame. Compared to the wonderful golden frog call. Yeah. Purple frog. Oh, purple frog. I find that offensive. <laughs> How can anyone suggest they're related? You know what? Phylogenetics can do one. Those frogs are different. <laughs> well, they are different. This is the point. Is that there, there, there has been this separation, and clearly there's been quite a big shift in vocalization. <laughs> that's one of these. That's actually something we should mention, isn't it? Though that these purple frogs represent a really, really basal um, lineage of frogs. They're frog. really distinct. They're yeah. really old school. Um, they were in their own. They were in their own family for a bit, but now it seems like the literature is kind of ambiguous about whether or not they still are. I couldn't get to the bottom of it. I, I read different things. Decided not to dive into the taxonomy. Yeah. Well, this I decided time. to dive into it, and then I you got scared swiftly. It's like, why do I care? Like, hang on a minute, I'm not a taxonomist. It doesn't matter to me. Whatever. <laughs> oh no, it's interesting. Don't don't poo poo the taxonomy. I won't poo poo it entirely. There is space for it, but like it's. Yeah, I'm not going to... Sometimes well, it's daunting if been, when it hasn't been yeah. fully worked If out. I've been frowning for more than 15 minutes about something, then I'm going to move on. <laughs> if it's taxonomy. Either way, drastic contrast to closely related frogs. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Uh, nice little comparison there. That was a cool idea. Yeah, I think that just about wraps up the uh, purple frog. Yeah, I mean, really, the point of the paper was to provide information that would help upkeep surveying and... and range delineation for this species by providing a you know a really detailed description of the call to use for conservation efforts and i think they did everything they achieved there they've got recordings they've got i mean we we've skipped over the big core of this paper that was that detailed description of the characteristics of the call but it's all there and it's all ready to be used and it's a valuable resource for anybody wanting to look at purple frogs i mean you wouldn't actually want to look at them but to study them, perhaps. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Like, it's there for anyone who wants to study it in the future. And the brilliant thing about PLOS One is, like you say, they've got all their additional supporting information. Yeah. And yeah, You just go there, bam, download, okay, into the field. Does yeah. that sound the same? Because despite the fact we make jokes about this, like you say, it's range-restricted and it's got it's very fissural in its habits and it probably is very vulnerable. So, yeah, kudos, kudos to the authors. Right, well... Purple frogs aside, it's time to move on to, drumroll, species of the bi-week. <laughs> yeah, everybody's favourite bi-weekly, herpetologically based segment. Bi-weekly, by the way, is a word that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Its use is like done, actively discouraged. We should have done fortnightly. Yeah, but never mind. I there. remember us saying fortnightly yeah. when we were thinking of it, but it just doesn't have the same ring. Bi-weekly is Twice ambiguous in its definition, yeah. and that does not make for a good word. No. Especially when it's to do with time. Yeah. It's like fundamentally flawed. <laughs> <laughs> never mind. Never mind.
we're, we're in too we're deep into, now. We're in too deep. <laughs> Species of the bi week. Will it come twice a week? Will it come every other week? You decide. It could be. Either. Well, I mean, I think it's not ambiguous in this context because it can't come twice a week because the podcast only comes out once every two weeks. But is it not possible that there are viewers who are panicking that in between every episode they're missing, they're missing three bi weekly species? I say viewers, they're listeners. Well, I mean, you can watch the bar go across your screen. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good times. No, never mind. So, uh, yeah, species of the week. This is a paper by Matsui, Nishikawa, and Ito, and it's entitled A New Burrow-Utilising Fanged Frog from Sarawak, East Malaysia, Anura Dicroglossidae. So, another filthy little burrow inhabitor. Mm, 2014 Raffles Bulletin of Zoology. Which we hadn't heard of as a journal, but it turns out it's actually coming out of the... National University of Singapore. Singapore, yeah, that's right. And yeah, it's actually had several different names over its history because of a weird and complicated history of the museum it comes out of, but hey. Either way. You learn something new every fully day. Fully legit paper. Um, and yeah, they described this new species of frog. Fanged frog. Yeah, fanged frog. And yeah. the new species is called Limnonectes Sintalabung, which the Limnonectes is the generic name. I'm not. I couldn't work out where that came from. Um, but they're sort of the fanged mm. frogs. Well, limno is to do with water, isn't it? Oh, is and it? Lakes and stuff like. Oh. Uh, I can't even remember the correct term for the study of lakes, but it, I think it's limno something. Is it limnology? Perhaps. Well, I'd never heard of that. That's really cool. I, don't, don't quote me on any of this. Well, this is just what I'm. <laughs> too late. I'm already firing off an email quoting you on that. The, so the species name, which is Sintalabung, it comes from the Malay words. This is beautiful, actually. Mm. Sinte, meaning to love, and Lubang, meaning a hole. So uh, they're hole lovers, which is really nice. Yeah. Because they live in holes. Mm. Not holes that they make themselves, though. No, they're little usurping frogs. Yeah. I can't, well, perhaps not usurping, but certainly uh, opportunistic frogs. Because I have a habit of looking at the pictures first when I read these papers, because... It's fun, and I like to know what the frog looks like so I can yeah, get want... an image in my head. Exactly. And so one of the things I noticed immediately was like, wow, did that frog dig that hole? That hole's massive compared to that frog. Um, but as it turns out, no, they use burrows that are most likely dug by rats. Mm. They couldn't say 100% because they didn't actually see any rats, but like... It's the correct size for a rat. Yeah, they're yeah. the only mammal that fits the bill. So you said about what these frogs look like. What do these frogs look like? Well, they're chocolate brown. Chocolate brown. Delicious, delicious chocolate frogs. And we're talking a sort of um, medium milk. No, not dark chocolate. They're reasonably light brown. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they've got a whitish underneath. So potentially a bit of counter shading. Who knows? And they also, which is quite unusual, have little small, small blue spots on their mm. arms and on their flanks as well. Which, yeah, check out the photo in the paper. They're really, really cool looking. And a visible typanum. Yes. What did I call it? Timpanum. Timpanum. Typanum. Yeah. Potato, potato. Potato, potato. You know, the the middle eardrum. Yes. Which is different from other species of which genus. Are which yes. don't have that as much. The other thing which makes them different, they also have very smooth skin. Some of the ones don't have the smooth skin that looks similar. They're these lump- ones have lumpy smooth skin. Yeah, these are less lumpy. And... They they shed the skin if they if you pinch them a little tiny bit a little bit of skin comes off which the authors said was uh, likely to be an anti predator defence maybe 
Or they just have really weak skin because they're weak, pathetic little frogs. <laughs> could be that, yeah. Could be that. I like to think that it's a clever mechanism for escaping, but... I never fail to be impressed at your contempt for small <laughs> frogs. <laughs> it's not... Like, it's not contempt. I love them, really. <laughs> but they have such fragile skin that actually it's even more fragile than a similarly closely related species from China, which is actually named for its weak skin. Fragilis, isn't it? Yeah, Limonectes yeah. fragilis. Um, yeah, its skin is so fragile they named it fragilis. But this one has even more fragile skin. See, I mean, you're, you're, you're stuck there, aren't you? When, when a species that looks like it should be named that. Yeah, has been named that. You've got to come you, up with something else. You, You're sort of stuck. You've painted yourself into a corner. Yeah. For example, if they find a species which loves holes more Even than more, this one, oh what are they going to do? They can't. You know, they're going to have to just. It's going to be a misnomer then. Yeah, you're going to have to think of a more intense adjective than love. Some. I, I mean, I don't know the Malay language. We'd have to learn the Malay language. Perhaps there's a word for like intense, unre- unrelenting devotion, and then <laughs> we'll be able to. I don't know. We're getting sidetracked anyway. Um, yeah, this frog. Uh, like we said, it loves holes. Um, it's active in the evenings after 7.30pm and it, they're always found near to their nice big burrow. They're only three or four centimetres long, these frogs, but their burrows are sort of five or ten centimetres wide and up to 60 centimetres deep. Mm. You know we said that they couldn't be digging their own holes because the holes were too big? Another reason you can tell they weren't digging their own holes is because they don't have spade-like feet or pointy noses which they could use for digging. They, mm. they just they don't look like they're diggers basically they're just opportunists exactly yeah yeah they live in the holes of rats probably animals <laughs> <laughs> so they've got these fangs these fang frogs I and hope so they don't really know why from what I could tell do you know why I couldn't work out why is it like those tiny deer that have fangs Muntjac deer is it monkjacks? I don't know I don't know it's a mammal yeah, it's a boring mammal. It's got fur, I don't understand it. <laughs> yeah, what? They give their babies what from their what? That's <laughs> disgusting. Oh, yeah, and the purple frog isn't? Come on. <laughs> yeah, valid. No, no competition. Um, yeah, anyway, this frog got me onto another frog from the genus. Uh, Iskandar et al. did a paper in 2014 describing a new species of fanged frog called Limnonectes larvipartus. And what was cool about these is that they have internal fertilization and then they give birth to tadpoles they don't lay eggs which turn into tadpoles they give birth to tadpoles um and that species is endemic to Sulawesi in Indonesia so not a million miles away from there this one is well yeah this this whole genus seems to be quite widely distributed did we mention that this one was from Borneo at the beginning I hope so I don't know if we did it's from Borneo yeah well it's in the title the title is East, East Malaysia yeah which is actually Malaysian Borneo yes but there seems to be loads of different species belonging to this genus and a whole bunch more to be found and described because there's sort of micro perhaps micro endemic stuff mm. going on and how they might not be you know look very distinct but they are distinct uh, genetically and all these sort of weird cryptic species yeah your casual observer might just think oh there's another brown frog with blue spots but actually they're very different oh, this in their ways got smooth skin. oh this one does have the smooth skin yeah. and um it's got a weird ear yeah the weird ear which you wouldn't get at a glance, you wouldn't think. I mean, I've never looked at a frog before. Look at the state of his ear. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, on the topic of... By the way, Lava Partus from that other Limnonectes, great name. Like, depositing of larvae. That's really cool. Mm. Um, yeah, there's another one called... From a completely different place. This one's actually from Puerto Rico, and it's called the Golden Quaquai, or Eulithyridactylus jasperi. And this one actually 
The eggs are fertilized internally, which it carries in t- inside. Then they turn into tadpoles, which it carries inside. And then, eventually, it gives birth to three to six fully metamorphosed froglets. That's wicked. This frog blew my mind. And I googled the golden cockery and I was like, look how cool this is. Like, unbelievable. Bromeliad specialist. So it lays its... Uh, sorry, it hangs out in bromeliads. And apparently there's another couple of toads that could birth to live young like this. But that was all from a Wake 1978 paper, I should mention. Unfortunately, I delved into this golden cockwai. Oh, don't tell me it hardly exists in the wild anymore. Yeah, they think it's extinct. Oh. It hasn't been seen since 1981. And I couldn't find any information on them being captive bred. So if you can get in touch with us and give us some good news about the golden cockwai, I'd be really, really happy because they're really adorable little frogs. You can see Ben's picked them picked them up on google image search they're cool right and they give birth to live babies but they're like seemingly extinct iucn's got them as critically endangered but i mean they haven't been seen for 30 years yeah that's pretty dire especially in that part of the world where we know old uh, frog fungus i forget chytridiomycosis that's the ticket yeah yeah chytrid and they think they're not sure but they think it's chytrid combined with um, habitat degradation because they really rely on these bromeliads yeah very specialist that's I didn't mean to end on such a sad note but nevertheless really cool strategy and there are a couple of other toads that they give birth to live fully metamorphosed frog froglets toadlets yeah yeah so yeah, that's something but hopefully please tell us if you know about the golden cockwise captive breeding efforts and it'll make us really happy yeah but yeah, regardless of that, this Limnonectes is a cool new species, little brown frog with blue spots. Happy days. Cool name. Cool yeah. frog. Excellent. Yeah. That's all I got. Yeah. For everything, I think. Wrap it up. Yeah. Cool. Thus, we conclude another episode of Herpetological Highlights, episode seven in the bag. Hope you've enjoyed our foray into, you used the word antics in our social media thing I saw, which I really liked. The antics of burrowing frogs. It makes them seem like they're up to no good. <laughs> Have you seen their little faces? So Man, they look like they're up to no good. So Spending weird. all their time underground. We don't know what they do. Well, that's it. Like, what is estivating? No one knows. No one truly knows. Anyway. Well, actually, sorry. One final little point. There is a good clip um, from the BBC's Life in Cold Blood, which shows you footage of... Uh, I forget what type of burrowing frog underground um, during uh, their breeding season. Is that the same as the video I shared on our Facebook? The rain I think frog. so, yeah. The, the, the rain frog. I mean, that's the best footage I've seen of an underground frog ever. Check it out. Yeah, yeah. Go onto our Facebook page and you can see that. Well, actually, I don't think that exact... Is that exact bit? Yeah, I think that exact bit's in yeah, that Yeah, I watched the whole thing. Yeah, so. excellent. So yeah, check us out. That leads us nicely into... If you want to find us on Facebook facebook.com slash herb highlights we're also on twitter tweeting all the time about everything <laughs> at herb highlights the website herb highlights.podbean.com herb highlights.podbean.com that's where all the show notes will be that's where everything's uploaded that's where you know you want to find any of these papers yourself to do further reading if you're really into fossorial frogs it's all there it is there's a fantastic paper trail for you to follow if you want yeah and you could go even further down the frog borrow than we have if you wish email us herphighlights at gmail.com don't think we've ever actually checked the email <laughs> yeah no don't worry i'm gonna keep an eye i'm joking we do check it yeah no questions one... comments and uh, corrections of course because 
We're definitely not infallible. Yeah, yeah, we are definitely not. Um, if we made any mistakes, if it's your paper that we've butchered, sorry, and let us know. Yeah, because no, we will absolutely own up and correct to horrible misrepresentations of people's research. That's the last thing we want to do. Yeah, it's like we always say: we're not experts. We just read the we read the stuff. We talk about it. Um, we enjoy it. It's fun. Mm. So, yeah, let us know if any corrections, comments, questions. We'd love to answer some questions. So if you've got anything, then shoot us a line and we'll endeavour to answer them. Unless they're in- inappropriate, and then we won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. There's 1,100 species of hermit crab. Get out of town. I thought there was just one hermit crab. Oh, God. No one wants that many hermit crabs.